so on your way in there, you should have had got one of these packets there on both of these little podiums. If you didn't get one, I would recommend you getting one. They're not they're not mandatory, but uh, you know they they're nice to help follow along. Um, so we have been going through, as typical on uh, Wednesday night, we go through the Old Testament, or we've been going through the Old Testament for. Well, it's been years now, I think, that we've been going through the Old Testament, and um, and we're we we kind of got to the book of second of first and second Kings, but as we um, are trying to do on Wednesday night, is really understand just the story of the Old Testament in all of its facets, which includes for the next for tonight, last week, and tonight, and the next few weeks, um, a study of the prophets, particularly the prophet Isaiah. Um, as we get to them, the prophets, where they occur in the timeline of Jewish history, it's important to break away from, you know, a normal this happened, then this happened kind of timeline of events and talk about the book that was written by the prophet and how to understand it, the time, the timeline that it occurs in, like the situation in history that it actually was written in and, and how that actually helps us to understand what's, what's happening in the book. So far, and so we're in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is incredibly long, so it's 66 chapters. We only got to chapter 27 last week, so we, we kind of stopped there. But it's 66 chapters in total, and if you can, you just, if you can think of it, just sort of pin in your mind, Isaiah, 66 chapters, and it's divided um, with 39 chapters, the first 39 chapters being uh, the first half of the book, and chapters 40 to 66 being um, the last half of the book. And um, the, so the message is kind of divided in two, and there's really a sharp division between the two, as we're going to see tonight. We're going we're gonna to get through chapter 39 tonight, and then we're just going to kind of peek our head a little bit into chapter 40, and then just sort of leave it there, and we'll come back next week and pick up the rest of it. But... Um, there's a really a sharp division between chapters 39 and, and 40. And, um, and so the first 39 chapters really consist of Isaiah pointing to the nation of Judah and saying, look, Israel has just collapsed. Israel has, has just fallen. The northern kingdom has just collapsed. And you, southern kingdom, you need to, you need to take note because they're coming for you. And there's reason, there's good reason why you're being, you know, called out, you're being condemned, and why you should be afraid, because there's going to be a nation come in and just rob you blind. And, um, and so the first 39 chapters is really Isaiah doing that. And then in chapter 40, he turns for the last 40 to 66, whatever it is, 27 chapters or so, and, and tell, gives them hope. And in fact, when you look at chapter 40 and following, it almost looks like they're done with captivity. So Isaiah, keep in mind, is writing some hundred years before Judah is captured by Babylon. And then starting in chapter 40, it sounds like they're done. And he's talking to them like they're done. And we're certainly going to get into more of that much later, but it, it, it's, it's an interesting sharp division that happens there uh, between 40. But once 40 gets there... It's now over, captivity is over, and hope is on the horizon. But you've got a problem, because all the Jews have just been captured. They're in captivity in Babylon. What, what happens to a group of people when they've suffered for 
40, 50, 60, 70 years. What, do they, what tends to be their thoughts about God? They start to lose hope. And so, yeah, you start to question whether or not God is real. How, how can he actually have allowed us? To, I mean, we see a lot of that coming out of the Holocaust, World War II. The Jews go into to the Holocaust and coming out of the Holocaust lot, much more liberal than they went in. Um, because how could this possibly happen? How can we believe in a good God where this takes place? And we're certainly going to see some of that tonight um, in some of the stuff that we, we're going to see in Isaiah. So remember, it's 66 chapters in total, first half, second half, and, and really, you got in the, just as an easy way to remember that, if it helps. I don't know if it helps or not, but there's how many books in the Old Testament? 39. There's 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, also divided like that in Isaiah. Uh, the chapters aren't inspired, so that was just, we'll just chalk that up to coincidence? I don't know. Providence? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> I guess so. Um, so Isaiah opens uh, his book, and remember the first five chapters is sort of him kind of giving you a little bit of the flavor of what's going to happen in the book, and he's telling you, here's all the judgment that I'm going to be talking about, and it's, it's, it's really a fantastic opening. It's, a, it's the way you want to open a book, you know. And it's not until chapter 6 that we actually get his calling, and he is standing there in the temple, and remember the, the, the doors of the temple are shaking, and he's terrified, and he starts confessing his sin because he sees God sitting on the throne, and, he, and he's, he's like, wigging out is the best way to describe what he's doing. And he starts confessing sin. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in amongst the people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. And basically what we're seeing here is the holiness of God is sitting on the throne. And Isaiah, for the first time in his life, gets a, a vision of what it's like to see God. And no matter what you imagine him to be like, what he's really like is pretty obvious just by the people that have encountered him in the, in the Bible uh, Isaiah starts confessing sin. John starts confessing sin in Revelation and is frozen, paralyzed, falls down as though dead. Various people have seen uh, God the Father. Some have seen um, Christ there on the, on the throne um, and in, in the angel of the Lord, various other visions that they've seen. And, well, it, it froze them. Right? No matter what they thought about this individual, it, it sort of was a, a, maybe a different experience, we could say. And that's for Isaiah, that's what happens. And so the Lord actually, he realizes his sin and he starts confessing it before the Lord. And what has to happen before Isaiah can go out preaching the message, before God can put his word in Isaiah's mouth, he has to be atoned for. And so he takes the hot coals and he put, places it on his, his lips to purify that unclean mouth that he's just confessed. And so Isaiah then goes out and he preaches what the Lord has told him to preach to people, which is a really hard message. Um, he says in Isaiah 6 about his message, keep preaching and they'll, they'll never hear, they'll never perceive, they'll never see, and I want you to do this. It's a message of condemnation. It, it's hardening the hearts of the people. They're resolved to be against God at heart. And when Isaiah preaches to them, it only further hardens their heart. It doesn't break their heart in repentance and faith. And so it's a, 
kind of, it's really a message of condemnation. And so the first many chapters is really Isaiah getting that commission, going to Ahaz, going to kings, telling them the, the, this message that God has given him, uh, proclaiming a message against Babylon, against Assyria, against so many other kingdoms, telling them how they're going to fall, all the nations around Israel, how they're going to fall. And then eventually he gets to chapters 24 to 27 where he outlines what's going to happen to Israel. And he depicts it as two cities. One is the lofty city, and one is the new Jerusalem. The lofty city is a people. It's, we're not talking about an actual city limits or an actual geographical location or anything like that that he's pointing at. He's talking about a, a, a people that are haughty, they're proud, they're boastful, they're arrogant, and God is going to come in and he's going to lay waste to them and he's going to take them down and he's going to build a new city, which is a new people. It's a people that are cleansed of sin, that are purified, that are people that are repentant, essentially. And so they're going to form what is considered Mount Zion. They're going to be the new Jerusalem uh, people. And when that happens, when he creates that people, that will be the death of death. Death will be no more. In fact, we see a lot of these echoes in the New Testament where, where it's told about, about Jesus, even in his resurrection, that that's the end of death. And then in our resurrection to come, we will say, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Paul gets that from Isaiah, from this very section in Isaiah, where there's a brief glimpses of hope. And so Isaiah, in the first like 39 chapters, sort of oscillates between judgment and hope, and judgment and hope, and judgment and hope. Now, the hope is far less than the judgment. There's a lot more judgment than there is hope, but you get the idea. And so, tonight, we get to chapter 28 through about 35 or so, which forms the next little section. So, 39 chapters, all are the first half of the book, and kind of divided up just a little bit in there. 28 to 35 is really a collection of, of poems where Isaiah is condemning, again, the reasons why the southern kingdom is going to collapse, why the southern kingdom is going to come to ruin, and a big piece of that collapse is that they have found common cause with foreign nations. What does that mean? They sought alliances, right? They have sought to make alliances with other nations. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Our nation has made alliances with other nations. What's the harm in making alliances with other nations? Is that bad, inherently? Somebody? Anybody? Is that bad? What is it? Okay, not necessarily. So why are they being judged for it? Why are they being called out? Yeah, the reason they're making the alliance is because they don't trust that the Lord can actually protect them. Or they'll say, Lord, we believe you can protect us. His prophets will say, he'll protect you. And yeah, we, we, we believe that. But you know what we're going to do? We're going we're to hedge our bets over here just in case. All right? We've got a second line of defense just in case you decide to get finicky on us one day. Then we've at least got... And Egypt specifically is called out as one that they've trusted in. Let's, let's look at uh, 31 to 7 and 31, 1 to 3. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord. 
who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter of the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For through his officials, though his officials are at Zoan, and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through, in, uh, through a people that cannot profit, uh, profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beast of the Negev, throughout the land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lionesses and uh, the lioness and the lion and the, the adder and the flying fiery serpent. They carry their riches on their backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I call her Rahab, who sits still. Now look at 31, 1 to 3. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because there are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel and, or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who helped will fall, and they will all perish together. So there's some awful words of condemnation coming to Judah for, one, for uh, several reasons. We're going to talk about a couple of them. One is they've sought common cause with foreign nations. Second is that they've seen themselves as untouchable. It can happen to any of us. At some point, you start to think, we have the most powerful military in the world and nobody can touch us. We're pretty good. Why on earth would we need God? Um, and Israel is guilty of that. They've become uh, proud to the point that they consider themselves untouchable because why? Well, they're the Lord's people, don't you know? Why would God make promises to our father David and then destroy us? He can't destroy us. He's already made a promise to us through David. He, 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 we're good. We're good. It never occurred to them the Lord doesn't need you <laughs> at all. And he can still be faithful to, to David, and he doesn't need you at all. Um, but they've seen themselves as untouchable. But Isaiah tells them that judgment is going to come, and it's going to come at a specific time. Let's look at verse 20, chapter 28, verses 14 to 22. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who, laid, who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Are you picking up here what he's laying down? You hearing some things? Okay. And I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. 
then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through, by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, and as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do, de- to do this deed, uh, to do his deed. Strange is his deed, and to work his work. Alien is his work. Now, therefore, do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction for the Lord uh, God of hosts against the whole land. Okay, so he says that this is going to come, this moment of judgment, when they see, themsel- they see themselves as untouchable, and they will be touched by this judgment when he lays the cornerstone in Zion. Who is this? This is a quote in the New Testament, right? The cornerstone is laid in Zion. And here's we talked about this a little bit last week. I'm going to say it again this week because I want you to, to really think about this. That when the prophets are looking on the horizon toward what we know of as the New Testament era, the church age, the coming of the Messiah, the advent of Jesus, when they're, they're looking on the horizon at this, what we know as two appearances, his initial coming, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and his second coming, what we know as two appearances, they're seeing as one appearance, right? They're, they're seeing as, as lined up. And so... The, the, that's one part of it, okay? So, but the other part is, you have to remember that Jesus' first coming is an act of judgment. You understand that? It's an act of judgment. We often think, no, 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 no. That's the act of grace and mercy, and coming is the act of judgment. Well, that certainly is gracious and merciful. Yes, that is an act of grace and mercy. It is also an act of judgment. He comes in and he finalizes condemnation against the Pharisees. And he says to them, you are a child of Satan. Is that an act of judgment? Yes. He alone, as the Son of God, has the authority to say, when heaven comes, which is right now, you're not going to be there. You're of your father, the devil. You are a brood of vipers. You are not my people. In Matthew 1, when we see the angel tells Joseph, he, you will call his name Emmanuel, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. There's a flip side to that coin if you're paying attention. You hear it? What's the flip side? He will not save, not his people, from their sins. Right? There's a flip side to that coin. And when he tells the Pharisees, you're of your father the devil, well, he's talking about them. They're included in that group. So the coming of Jesus, the first coming and the second coming, is an act of judgment. John tells us as he's coming, his winnowing fork is in his hand. 
The axe is laid to the root. That stump we were talking about last week, where the stump is going to be cut down and burned, and then out of it, the shoot is going to rise up, and that shoot is going to be Jesus. That stump, he says, look, he's laying the axe to the wood right now. That's an act of judgment. He's going to burn it all down. So Jesus' first coming, you have to understand and get this fixed in your mind. He's getting rid of the pretenders. All the ones that are pretending as though they're part of the family of God, they're all being eradicated. They're all being told, you're actually not. They're being exposed. You're not a part of the family of God. Even the people who were the religious elites, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, they're being told, you're not included. So it's an act of judgment. All right, but, but in order to understand and really cement in our mind what's happening in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, you have to understand the book of Isaiah. Because if you don't understand what Isaiah is saying, those quotes that the New Testament gospel writers pull out, like the cornerstone and all, all this, those quotes seem like they're pulled out of left field. Oh, he just he liked that passage in Isaiah, and so he just grabbed that verse and he just threw it in there. That's false. In this section in Isaiah, Isaiah is talking about getting rid, God getting rid of all the hypocrites in Israel. So the gospel writers go, remember them getting rid of all the hypocrites in Israel? Bingo. Here he is. Cornerstones come. Okay, so they see themselves as untouchable. Then there's more judgment that's proclaimed on the Jewish people for rampant hypocrisy amongst the people. There uh, exist many who participate with Israel. How? Through outward conformity. Does this sound like anybody you know? Does sound, I, don't, I don't mean your spouse or whoever's sitting next to you. I don't, I don't mean that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, does it sound like anybody you read about in the New Testament? Yeah. Listen, listen to this. Let's, let's look at Isaiah 29, 13 to 16. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of the wise men shall perish. You hear that? The wisdom of the wise will perish, and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that thing that, may, that, may, that, that, that the thing made should say of its maker? He didn't make me. Or that the thing formed should say of him who formed it? He has no understanding. So, li listen to what he's saying there. First of all, there, there's rampant hypocrisy amongst the people that he's going to get rid of. And he actually, Isaiah here quotes Jesus. Or the other way around, Jesus maybe quotes Isaiah when he says the same thing about the Pharisees. You acknowledge, he says, well did Isaiah prophesy about you in Matthew 15, 8 to 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He's telling the Pharisees that. He's talking specifically to them, and he's saying Isaiah was talking about you. Now he's also talking about Israel, who is 
currently in the midst of this, and they're going to be taken off to captivity. But he's also talking about, Jesus says, the Pharisees. This is the moment of judgment. Jesus goes back into this section of Isaiah, where Isaiah is laying out all the criticism to the nation of Judah, and the reason they're going to be judged by Babylon. And he says, you are hypocrites. And Jesus goes, yep, and the judgment is coming now. You only thought Babylon was bad. What about when you're sealed for eternity? Then it's going to be really bad. Okay, so there's outward conformity through in Israel, but their hearts are vacuous. Their hearts are, have nothing in them. Um, and then his judgment that is coming is going to get rid of all the pretenders, and though the hypocrites have turned his people upside down, he's going to set them right. Now, do you remember that when he said that in the, in the passage that we just read in Isaiah? He says, you, here's the problem. You've turned everything upside down. We've talked about this in the Gospel of Matthew, that when Jesus comes in, he talks about the kingdom being upside down. The poor are going to be the ones to receive the gospel. The, the meek are going to be the ones to receive the gospel. It's upside down from its value system. Well, Isaiah is saying, you're the one that turned it upside down. Jesus is actually coming to set it right. The meek should be receiving the gospel. The poor should have the gospel preached to them. You're the one that turned it upside down so that the rich are honored and the poor are disparaged. That's not how the kingdom of God is supposed to work. It's supposed to work like this, so that we actually give justice to the poor, those that can't afford it. And so all the pretenders who have turned the world upside down, he's going to set right and he's going to get rid of all of them out of his kingdom. So he's gonna, And then he says he's going uh, to cast, uh, the pretenders will be cast out and the deaf, the blind, the meek, and the poor will exult in the salvation that's from God. Look at 29, 17 to 24. Yeah. Right, right. It says in 29, 17 to 24, it is, is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a, bro- of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing and the scoffers cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out, of, of, out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, uh, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall, be no, more, shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of his hands, in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. Okay, so all of that's true. But then if you look forward at the, at the New Testament, remember how what, what is said to us in Matthew and several other places where Jesus is speaking he says in Matthew 5, 3 to 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Uh, what is he doing there? He's, he's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's just said that in, in the previous chapter in Matthew 4, 17. And then he starts preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, when the, the kingdom of heaven that is now here is going to turn the world right side up, where the poor and the meek and those who mourn will be comforted and to them will belong the kingdom of heaven. Why is he saying that? Well, then he says something similar to John. Remember, John the Baptist is in prison and he's doubting because he's in prison. And he said, well, Jesus is the Lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world. Then he gets thrown in prison and he's being threatened with his life. And he goes, wait a minute, what happened to this whole kingdom of heaven thing? I thought you were the one. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and they're like, are you the one or should we expect another? And then Jesus gives them an answer in Matthew eleven four to 6. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor, this is really important, the poor have the good news preached to them. In other words, they get justice. The poor get justice. They don't die in obscurity. They're told the good news of the kingdom of heaven to which they can belong. Why is that significant? Because that's what Isaiah is saying is going to happen. You, rich and powerful and mighty, you have spearheaded, you have quote-unquote shepherded Israel, and yet when the poor people come in, you don't actually give to them the truth, the good news of God's kingdom. You hide it from them. And so why is it important that Jesus says the poor have the good news preached to them? It means that they're getting justice for the first time. It means that what Isaiah prophesied about this time period when he comes, when the cornerstone comes, is being fulfilled. So John, you need to know the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. I'm the one bringing it. And the poor have the good news preached to them. Things are being restored. Things are being turned right side up, in other words. Uh-oh. Is that noise bad? Okay, good. We had some issues earlier, so I just want to be sure. Um, all right, now how does, how does one escape from the coming judgment? Well, he says the only escape. You've guessed it. Repentance. That's the only escape. Look at Isaiah 127. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But 31, 6-7, which is in the section we're concerned about, turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. So turn to him and away from whatever you're in. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. He's, he's telling them to repent. But we see this same message coming back to us in the New Testament. When John the Baptist comes on the scene, what does he preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God is making all things right. Remember Isaiah? He's telling you to repent. It's now. Now's the time. Repent. Well, what does Jesus come on the scene and preach? Matthew 4, 17. He preaches the same thing John does. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is the only escape from this kind of punishment, this judgment that God is bringing? It is repentance. And those who will find it are going to be the meek, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're, they're going to be the ones that inherit the kingdom. Okay, so, so you got these prophetic little poems 
that are talking about all of the ways in which Judah has sinned and the reasons why God is going to condemn them, 28 to 35. And then, uh, following that section, the first half of Isaiah closes with the rise and fall of a king called Hezekiah, who was a king over Judah. We haven't actually, timeline-wise, haven't actually got to Hezekiah yet. We'll do that when we get back to 2 Kings, but you already have a, a little bit of a head start, I guess you could say. Um, so it's the story of the rise and fall of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and what happens in this story is it plays out as a perfect illustration of exactly what Isaiah has just said in 28 to 35. All the reasons that you're going to be judged are on display right here in Hezekiah's life. So there's really two places where God saves Hezekiah's life. Just absolutely, unequivocally saves Hezekiah from certain death. And one of them we're going to talk about tonight, another one we're going to talk about in a couple weeks, but the Assyrian army comes in, and they're coming to invade Jerusalem. And what happens when a, when a military has invaded a country and they have won battle after battle? No, let's not ask that question. Let me ask, what happens when a football team mows through all the competition one year and then the next year a whole new crop of players come in, you, you got the national championship, and then you start playing competitive talent? What do you end up thinking you're going to do when you walk onto the field at Florida you're gonna, this is going to be easy. This is going to be easy victory. And then you go up 21 to 3. What then do you think? Well, they're just going to lay over for us, right? And you end up winning by just two points, right? Isn't that what happens? And in that, what, it's natural. You get a little bit cocky, right? So Sennacherib is the king of Assyria, and he has had plenty of military successes. And so he marches up to the walls of Jerusalem, and he says, Hello, tell Hezekiah who I know is inside, that we're about to mow you guys down. And you know what? Don't bother calling out to your gods to save you because all the people that we just mowed down, they all called out to their gods. They all sang their alma mater, and we just marched right over them. Their fight song meant nothing to us. Their impressive crowds, nothing. We mowed them down and won the national championship. There's nothing you can do. Don't bother singing your fight song. Don't bother crying out to your God, we're going to kill you. And Hezekiah goes, yeah, they're going to kill me. <laughs> he, he pretty much knows, hey, Lord, you got to do something, because if you don't do something, we're going to die. And so Hezekiah understands this as a theological issue, not necessarily a political or military one, because if it's a military one or a political one, we're going to die. But if it's a theological one, maybe, just maybe, the Lord will come in and do something and miraculously rescue us. Look at, look at uh, 37, 14 to 20. Hezekiah received a letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah, this is a letter that Sennacherib sent him. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. <laughs> Here's the message. Here's what they said. Uh, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. 
and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, you are God. Save us from the hand, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone um, are Lord, are the Lord. Alright. So the Lord actually tells him. Yeah, I'll save you. I'm going to save you. And he does it with remarkable expediency. In fact, that night, he takes care of Sennacherib and his army. Sennacherib goes home, and what Sennacherib didn't account for is that it's the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. Or he didn't listen to it. He didn't read his Bible where it says, raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. He didn't raise his kids that way. And all they saw is power, and they wanted it now. And so Sennacherib thinks that he's got Israel pinned, Judah pinned, goes into his temple and begins to pray to his God, and his sons sneak up behind him while he's praying and slit his throat. That night, the Lord answers his prayer. So, Hezekiah has been spared. That was once. Next, he gets sick, and the Lord saves his life there on his deathbed. We're going to talk about that a little bit later because there's some interesting issues that go on in it. So we're going to talk about that when we talk about issues within the book of Isaiah. But the point is, then, after having his, his life saved twice, his story comes to a close in chapter 39 when he hosts a delegation of Babylonians in Jerusalem. So the Babylonians have heard that he was sick in the previous chapter, and they send him a get-well present. What does it mean when a nation sends, you, sends your, the president a get-well present? Or the king a get-well present? You don't do that to your enemies. Well, they're not, they don't have a, a relationship at this moment, but they're seeking a relationship. So they send him a get-well present. Hey, how you doing? We just wanted you to have this. Hezekiah thinks fondly of the get well present, quite likes being fawned over, let's be honest. And he decides, you know what? I know you're seeking to build an alliance, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you all of the treasury of Israel, of Ju Judah, including the treasury that's in the temple. So I get what you're, what you're going after. I'm going to tell you right now, not only are we in, buddy, but you can see everything we got. And look, we make quite the nice little partner for you. All right? Let me just say. We can carry our end of the bargain. And so he shows them all the treasury in his, in his temple. And now, what, what did Isaiah just remind the nation of Israel and say, say they were going to be judged for? Building alliances with foreign nations and seeking security in their hands. Right? Didn't we just read how they went down to Egypt and they sought the, the protection in the shadow of Egypt? And How do you think Isaiah is going to respond when he hears Hezekiah, who the Lord has just spared twice? He's just saved his life twice in a way that no one can argue. It's, I mean, it's tantamount to an angel coming and just like taking the wheel and Jesus take the wheel kind of thing and just saving you from that car wreck. And, and, 
and then you go out and you just live a life of debauchery after that. I mean, it's, like, it's tantamount to the same. There's no mistaking it. The Lord has just spared your life twice, and now you're going to build an alliance again with Babylon? Why? Seems they can't turn away from it. So when Isaiah hears about it, he reprimands him. And he tells them, that your behavior is obviously what has been chastised the whole book, but your behavior and trusting yourself to foreign alliances is what's actually going to get you into trouble. And that nation that you've just built an alliance with, that's going to be the nation. It's not going to be Assyria. It's going to be that nation that you just built an alliance with that's going to turn their back on you, and they're going to march in, and they're going to take every ounce of this gold in this temple, and they're going to haul every single one of you off back to their country. Now, that's a hundred years in the future. That's how the first half of the book comes to a close. You're going to be taken into exile. I think it's worth reading. At that time in chapter 39, at that time, <clears throat> Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard uh, that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them the treasure of his house, his, his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, the whole armory and all that was found in the storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah, the prophet, came to the king Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They came from the far country of Babylon. He said, uh, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that's in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom, your father, wh whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hold on. All right, don't read what's next. I'm going to read that in just a second. So I want you to just, I want you to just get a feel of how dumb Hezekiah really is. How dense and how, how sinful he really is. Hezekiah, in verse 8, Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. What? Did you hear what he just said? For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Is that not the craziest thing you've ever... <laughs> I mean, here is Isaiah, who is a prophet, whose everything he said has come true, and you're going to respond to him, oh, they're going to take my sons? They're going to take my sons and all the people then? Oh, I'll be dead by then. Who cares? That's crazy! They're going to take everything in here, and they're going to take your sons, they're going to take all of the children. Well, at least, at least they won't come when I'm alive. All right. Bro, whatever. Okay. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, he predicts that one day they're going to be carried on. That's exile. Exile. So the first half of the book of Isaiah comes to a close uh, with the promise that Babylon's going to invade Judah, capture its wealth, haul them off, and... Um, and that's going to happen in more than 100 years. But, but then we also have this on, on, in our background, what we talked about last week. 
Remember, God is going to judge Israel. He's going to cut the tree, and the tree's going to fall over, and the stump is going to be left, and it's going to be burned. But then, out of that stump, the new kingdom is going to grow from a shoot. And in chapter 11, we find out that shoot is going to be from the stump of Jesse. That stump is from Jesse, and the shoot is going to come up. We know that that's ultimately Jesus. So, while we end in 39 with this, well, it's depressing, all right? <laughs> we end in just like this sort of moment of despair. We're still waiting on more word about this shoot. And so 40 to 66, the reason why Isaiah 53, you know Isaiah 53, by stripes we're healed, the reason that that chapter is in this section of Isaiah 40 to 66 is because that shoot is being talked about here as a servant. He's not, he's not just a, a shoot, not just a sprout from the line of Jesse. He's a servant, and his job is to suffer. He's going to come, and he's going to suffer, and, but that's going to bring about your deliverance. That's all 40 to 66. It's, it's all that message of hope. All right, so he's coming. He's on the horizon, and, and it's all the second half of the book. But the, the second half of the book opens, so in, in chapter 40, it opens... Um, the people that were in captivity, it, it's really over. So it's, it's a, there's a message of hope because the, the captivity in Babylon is done. Now, that's 100 years from Isaiah. But, but there, there's some way in which Isaiah is looking into the future and prophesying about it. We'll talk more about that in, in a few weeks. But just suffice it to say for now that he's kind of looking into the future of what the other side of captivity is going to look like and what message is going to be preached to them but, but understand this. When 40 happens, the people are in Babylon. All right, the setting, if you will, of chapter 40, the people are in Babylon. All right? And the message that's preached to them is, all right, it's over. And that stump, that shoot, the suffering servant is about to lead you out of Babylon and captivity. But... Listen to one of the verses that's in chapter 40, verses 1 to 5. You'll, you'll remember this. It opens with, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her, welfare is, her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the hand of the Lord double for her all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The even ground shall become level. And the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. From the mouth of, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What, 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 where is that quoted? John the Baptist, right? What's that? Handel's Messiah, it's quoted, he says. Well, smarty pants. Um, the preaching that he's told to do now is crying out in the wilderness. Everybody get out of the way. The stump of Jesse, the shoot of Jesse, is going to lead you out of captivity from Babylon and into the promised land. John the Baptist speaks this in the Jordan River facing out east into the desert out toward Babylon. And he's saying, they say, who are you? Are you the Messiah? And he says, no, no, no. Remember that one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord? 
The Lord's coming. He's on the horizon. He's coming this way. Everybody get out of his way. Make the hills flat. Don't let him trip on any of this stuff. We need to keep him protected. All right? He's coming, and he's coming to redeem you. Who shows up on the shore? The Jesus of Nazareth. Shows up to get in the waters of baptism. This surprises John. <laughs> I, I should be baptized by you. What? Why? Why, why am I baptizing you? You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, it's fitting for righteousness' sake, so that, that all righteousness may be fulfilled. In other words, God requires this of his people to be baptized, so then I'm going to do it. But what else did God require of his people? Well, he required of them to march through the desert for 40, 40 initially 40 days, turned into 40 years. He, he required them to march through the desert and resist the temptations of the devil. So Jesus gets out of the baptism waters, and he goes right into the desert, and he resists the devil for 40 days. And then he comes back into the promised land. What, did he, what, did, what was the expectation of the children of Israel then? When they get up to the promised land to go in and drive out all the wicked. What does Jesus do? He then goes in, and he tells all the brood of vipers that they're going to hell. And then he conquers the holy land with the gospel, planting the seeds of the gospel there in the hearts of his disciples who then spread it all around the world. So Jesus actually walks the path of Israel. I know we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. He's bringing them out of exile and into the promised land. He's leading them through and he's giving them the message of hope, saving them from their sins, which is the gospel. Jesus died for you. He suffered the wrath of God on your behalf. He was buried, and three days later he rose again. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back one day to judge the living and the dead. The reason why that's important is because it's the only message by which men can be saved. And women, mankind can be saved. This is the message of hope. What happens on the flip side of that coin, though? Anyone that doesn't believe is dead. Condemned already. John says, the wrath of God remains on him. So then the question is, you, who are calling yourselves part of the family of God, you believe in the gospel, what are you going to do with it? Do you take it to the people that it's awkward to take it to? And that it risks a little bit of the relationship that they might believe and be saved? Or are you just a pretender? One way or the other, Christ is going to ferret it all out. Exposing us all. James, questions? You're a missionary or an imposter. Yep. Yeah. Look, it's not, um, it's possible to be sinfully disobedient to the Lord in just proclaiming the good news. It's possible to be just sinfully disobedient. But to you, I would say, repent. You know, the, the audience around you, 
that's immediately around you are family members. They're the hardest. It's much easier to share the gospel with somebody you've never met before. I'll tell you that much right now. But your family members are right around you. Be faithful. Parents, you have kids. Your, your kids are there. Never fail to teach them the gospel. Even, look, even if you're older and you, know, you made some mistakes and you didn't really maybe lead them the way you thought you should have and you, now you really regret that. Go back to them. If it's possible, call them. Meet with them face to face and tell them you're sorry. I should have told you this. I should have told you this more often. I should have lived it out in front of you. We should have opened the Bible together. I should have taught you how to read it, but I didn't, and I'm sorry. Own it. You got nothing to fear. Part of walking in repentance is doing that. This is the most important message that we've got. It's it. And, and believe it or not, there's a whole world of people out there that don't have it. And they think the world's made them tons of promises. Hey, you, you explore sexual promiscuity, your life is going to be awesome. You're going you're gonna to have all the pleasure that the world has to offer. And there's tons of people that have bought into that lie, and they're finding that it's bankrupt. That it, that it actually doesn't. And you can tell them the reason why. It can start with a simple question. Would you be open to having a spiritual conversation? Jeremy Hudson has been leading college students around the campus of the university for the last year during the fall and spring semesters. He's been taking college students around the university and just asking students that question. And it's remarkable the number of students that say, sure. And so he asked them, do you believe that man's greatest need is to be reconciled to God? And then they get going from there. They start talking. You can just have a question, just ask them. It's amazing how many people will respond and just talk with you. You just got to do it. It's on us. Timothy. Quickly, because i got to let people go. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's amazing when you uh, give, be ready in season and out of season to give a, a response with the hope that it's within you. Yeah. Just, just be faithful. Just be faithful. College students, your roommates, your friends that you meet with, you got a ripe field right in front of you. Um, adults, sometimes it can be harder. Sometimes it can be easier just depending on where you work and things like that. But just be faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for an opportunity to open your word. Uh, I pray that, that for clarity. I pray that you, for resolve, that you would set this word on our heart, um, challenge us, push us uh, towards sharing the gospel and giving the message of hope to the nations. We pray that y- we would see fruit from that, that, that as the gospel is proclaimed in and through the lives of the people in this church body, that, um, that people would come to believe salvation, that we'd be baptizing tons of people in months and years to come. So I I pray that you would sustain that kind of growth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.